Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare. Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Hippocrates has been famously quoted, especially by the functional medicine and holistic doctors, that all illnesses begin in the gut. Today's podcast guest, Dr. Valerie Taylor, may be the perfect person to answer the specific question, how much of our mental health is affected by our microbiome? Dr. Taylor is a professor and department head of psychiatry at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute in Alberta, Canada. She is internationally known as an expert in this area of the brain-gut connection. I think she's unusual in this aspect that not too many people who are psychiatrists are interested in poop. That's what kind of makes her special. I did have a, a prior podcast on the power of poop with Dr. Ari Greenspan several months ago, who's a gastroenterologist at Mount Sinai. And, uh, you know, we, it was a very interesting discussion, but obviously a lot of it was focused on infections in the gut and issues of that directly with the gut. But here we're going to be talking about how what's going on in your microbiome and assessing your stool may be telling us a lot more about your mood and whether you have a mental illness. And just a few facts before I bring Dr. Taylor in. The human gut has 100 trillion bacteria. So sometimes you have to think, what are they all doing there? The other thing is there are 3 million genes that help build molecules to help us digest food, make vitamins such as vitamin K, and to keep bad bacteria out of our system. And finally, this is, I think, super important. The bacteria in the gut make 90% of our serotonin in our body. And almost everyone knows serotonin as that neurotransmitter that, again, there are so many medications that are given to try to help boost your serotonin to keep us calm in a better mood. So with these facts and looking forward to a lot more answers, I'd love to welcome Dr. Valerie Taylor to the podcast. Thank you so much. Okay. So let's get down to business here a little bit. You know, I came across an article in Discover Magazine, which I really like a lot, uh, where they quoted you in an article that was called Gut Feelings. It was by Elizabeth Spoboda, which was very interesting. And just initially in the article, they mentioned that it wasn't until, believe it or not, the late 2000 that... An Irish scientist, I believe John Cryan, made one of the initial discoveries about the gut microbiota and this brain connection. And he did, I think, research in mice, you know, showing that they had less diverse microbiomes. So I want to ask you how you got involved and where you think some of the compelling research just even began. Obviously, we could go back to Hippocrates, but I don't remember him being published in the New England Journal. I think he was a little ahead of his time. So where did we begin with this? I think he was ahead of his time. And I've been in this field about 10 years, but this is actually, it's kind of new and old. And so if we actually, I would say about 100 years ago that this was actually one of the prevailing theories in mental health, the whole concept of auto-intoxication and basically that stress and low mood were burnout, were associated with whatever was going on in your GI system and actually know, Dr. Kellogg, who made many of the breakfast cereals, or his family made many of the breakfast cereals that uh, 
some of us ate uh, this morning. He actually ran Battle Creek Sanatorium. And one of the things that they did was that the well-heeled of the day, they got stressed. You go there to relax and to kind of de-stress. And one of the things that they did was they fed everyone a really bland diet. That's where our brand flakes, I guess, started out. Yeah, he, he made out very well from that, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that. That was so. That was probably one of the first times you know we we talked about pharma involvement. This is one of the <laughs> first early ideas about commercialization and getting yeah. things forward. And so, you know, the theory then was that brand diet kind of regulated everything, kind of fixed your GI system, and you weren't going to be stressed. So this concept has been around for a while, but as unfortunately things tend to go in. Right, because they become medications and obviously with all the SSRIs that became available, that was the big explosion. That was the big breakthrough in psychiatry. So what got you interested when pharmacology became obviously the dominant mode of therapy for patients with depression, anxiety, and even now schizophrenia? What led you to go in this direction? I'm just curious. Yeah, so my research started out sort of in medical psychiatry, but more looking at obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and how that manifested itself in patients with mental illness because of way higher rates of cardiovascular disease and all of those things in individuals who have mental illness. And so that was what my focus was on. And of course, that leads you back to looking at the medications because clearly there's a link between some of our medications and weight gain. And so the whole concept of we need better medications was sort of where my mind was going. And then at the same time, I just anecdotally I had two patients who had been quite unwell for a long period of time, and they'd pretty much not responded to anything. And both of them, separate of one another, needed antibiotics for two separate things. One of them had a minor surgical procedure, needed to take antibiotics afterwards. One of them uh, developed pneumonia, needed antibiotics. And both of them, about a week after starting the antibiotics, their mental health symptoms that are really not changed in 10 years or had both been profoundly depressed were cured like they were completely well and I'm taking both, a course of antibiotics they both came into me and sort of said what just happened you know antibiotics are not I was like I actually have no idea and of course in about two weeks after starting the antibiotics both of them became ill again once that once the antibiotics stopped and then one of them we actually did try a re-challenge and we said okay let's try this again yes. and the second time around nothing happened. And so mm. they were like, what is going on? I'm like, I don't know, but I'm going to try to find out and kind of rest, as they say, is history. And so I was at McMaster University at the time, and they have a really great microbiome program focused mostly on the GI system. And they do a lot of animal work. So I started doing work there and sort of learning about this association. I moved on to the University of Toronto, where we set up the first fecal transplant program for illnesses outside of the GI system. So to try to treat illnesses, not just C. diff, fecal transplant is actually recommended for C. diff infections now, and it's being looked at for other GI illnesses, but we started looking at it for other things and then ultimately came here to the University of Calgary where I'm the department head where they have a fabulous microbiome program and we're trying to really get into mechanisms and understand. Oh, that does sound interesting. And yeah, it's sort of your career led you along to this moment where things are really coming you know, to a head. So yeah, that leads me to my next question. It really interests me, you know, and I'm just staring at a picture in the article from Discover that shows the intestine. The gut is a huge immune organ. I don't think people really appreciate how, how long our intestines are and going from our stomach all the way from the small intestine to the large intestine. 
Do we know what areas might be really key in the microbiome of, again, this whole idea of the good and bad bacteria within the intestine? Because again, I also, what I've read is that the small intestine is supposed to be sort of a sterile environment, if that's correct. And it's the large intestine where a lot of the, quote, good bacteria, bad bacteria, garbage, stool, you know, it's like the garbage bag of everything. Is that where you focus? I mean, uh, do you differentiate? That's where the money is, so to speak. That's, yeah, that seems to be the area that's the key. But clearly, you know, there are people looking at a variety of different areas within that whole system and seeing how, if it's possible to, because sometimes that area is a bit harder to access. And so changes in one space will alter things in the other. But as you said in your opening, we think about 90% of all illnesses can be tracked back in some way to your GI system. And so we're hoping that manipulation, predominantly in the large intestine, will really have an effect on a variety of different things that are not intuitively linked to your large intestine. Mm. All right. Let's get into, to me, clinically, which is important, also the messy stuff. You know, back in the day, several years ago, people would bring in these reports on stool analysis. And honestly, I really didn't know what to make of it. I was like, I had not, in my background in infectious disease, immunology, and allergy. And the only time I ever ordered stool cultures, you know, or analysis was when patients traveled overseas and we were worried about OVA and parasites and, and things like that. But now there's a company here in the United States, Genova, that they're, you know, they're doing, people are regularly getting stool analysis. And, you know, I get back reports about, you know, butyrate levels and I think what's the other one, calpectin, which I look for, people have possibly Crohn's. So what are you, I guess I know you're doing research, but also clinically, what are you looking at when you're looking at the stool? What are you because I know supposedly, like, if uh, I, I guess if they have, someone has a lot of the good bacteria, quote, bifidobacter, they, they produce, I think, is it a lot of butyrate? Am I correct? Yes, butyrate is a short-chain fatty acid. And so it's one of the healthy byproducts of good bacteria in your gut breaking down fibrous foods. And so we need a lot of those bacteria. And so they produce butyrate. Butyrate is really important, does a lot of things, especially in your brain. So butyrate is sort of one of the end products that we think actually might be part of this gut-brain association. It helps with cognition. It's involved in sort of microglia, which are the cells in your brain proliferation and support. And so butyrate something that's really important. But those kinds of reports that you would get from companies like Genova are very different than the stuff that we'd be looking at. Well, so how reliable are that? I'd love to know as a clinician, because I deal with a lot of holistic medicine and find myself in my own practice, like helping people get what I call a healthier gut is critical in getting them better from issues like chronic fatigue syndrome that I see and candida overgrowth. So can you just give me a little insight? Do you think they're they're helpful or they're limited right now, those stool analysis? Well, I mean, you know, if you do stool analysis and you see blood, that might mean that oh, there's yes. a tumor. So right. Those are right. really important things. I think other than that, sort of looking at levels of butyrate or other things, kind of without really understanding what, what else is going on, they're not necessarily so helpful okay. for really identifying illness. It's sort of like those ancestry DNA where you kind of put in your, right. So, right. you know, you send in a bit of your spit and they come back with your ancestry history it, right. it could be 
really it's interesting to look at how actual meaningful is it yeah just to look at data you know because also some of these companies do like neurotransmitters in the blood i've seen from other holistic doctors which i don't do because to me neurotransmitters work at such a localized level how could the blood really be capturing that but i just wasn't sure and i really want to hear from someone like you whether the stool could be a beneficial way. I mean, again, you know, sometimes I tell people this podcast hopefully makes me smarter because I just recently diagnosed a patient, unfortunately, with Clostridia difficile toxin. You know, she had had two rounds of antibiotics, first for a dental infection and then for a urinary tract infection. And then over a period of two, three months, she lost like 30 pounds. She was having watery stools and it wasn't picked up. And then I finally said, you know, I think we should order the stool assay on you. And it came back positive and, you know, she's getting treatment now. And that's absolutely how these things can be useful for specific parasites and those kinds of indentation. Absolutely. Let me ask you this, because this is really, of course, what I like to call, was it the $90,000 question? So many of the studies that I was looking even in the Discover article by you, uh, on, on, you know, where you were quoted and one right before you, which was actually interesting. You know, so many of these studies are done on mice. What is the correlation to, to humans? And you feel at this point, that there's enough evidence to really strongly indicate that the bacterial changes in the gut have a strong effect on people's mood and some of these serious mental illnesses? Well, I may be the wrong person to ask because that's the whole field of research that we're doing is trying to translate this animal work into humans. And so we've taken it, we're, we're doing human first research. So Oh, I like that. But, but what you're saying, why would you be the wrong person? Because I think it is time that we started looking at. Yeah, right. Because people say, look, we know, you know, again, in my background over the years in immunology, there's a lot of things you can do with mice. And it's interesting. And sometimes it does translate. But a lot of times, it's not like doing monkeys or something. You know, there's a, and then, of course, now when we're talking about the brain, which is there's no other animal that has our type of frontal cortex and increased brain mass, that it could be just a whole different ball game. So. Absolutely. And that's not to downplay how important the animal work. However, yeah. I, mean, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for some really compelling animal work that sort of made you and made me go, what is happening here? And but now yeah. trying to, our, our focus is to work with, you know, our preclinical colleagues and to kind of see what happens, translating this stuff into humans to understand what's going on in people. And can we actually manipulate your gut microbiome in a way that actually is helpful for helpful for human disease and you know that can't happen without the animal research but it needs to happen in parallel there have been unfortunately a couple right. trials of different probiotics and compounds that really seem to make a difference in mouse models of illness depressive like behaviors in mice but unfortunately when they've been translated mm. into humans they just they don't seem to do yeah, we, we need a little warp speed program for this kind of thing, not just for the vaccine, although that's very promising in itself. All right, so let me ask you about the options to change the microbiome. Obviously, there's like probably two things that come to mind, the fecal transplants, the work that you're doing, and probiotics. So could you tell us a little bit, I guess, people kind of cringe sometimes when they hear about fecal transplants. But on the other hand, I've had patients travel to England to get fecal transplants for arthritis conditions, you know, a lot of different things. So people, you know, to get better are willing to do a lot of things. So I know, and there's different ways of doing it. I think there's pills, there's obviously enemas. So, so tell me again, this is your area. What, what's your experience, what you're doing in your studies and in finding of interest? So we've been pretty lucky that we kind of found some funding agencies who are willing to take some risks on 
pretty novel clinical trials. And the first was a Stanley Medical Research Foundation, which is a U.S.-based granting agency. And we started the first clinical trial focused on fecal transplant for mental illness. Now we'll say it's fecal transplant given the old-fashioned way. So it's uh, via colonoscopy. And that study is looking at the depressive phase of bipolar disorder or manic depression. And, you know, when we first got funding, certainly my colleagues were like, there is no way in hell somebody who is depressed who does not need a colonoscopy is going to volunteer for one. That is not something depressed people uh, would like to do is kind of say, you know what's going to make me feel better? A colonoscopy. But I think for patients, this makes Mm -hmm. sense to them. Like they really feel that there's a link between their GI system and their mental health Mm -hmm. symptoms. And so they were actually like, yes, I've been telling this to whoever listened for years that when my depression gets worse, my GI system gets worse, I don't know what's causing what. And so they found this area really fascinating. So we've actually had a lot of interest and we're hoping to conclude that study in 2021. So I'll, I'll loop you back in when those results come out. But certainly the preliminary data thus far has actually been really positive, so much so that we started a second study that's actually happening here at the University of Calgary. And it is fecal transplant via capsules. And it's actually funny, depending on, it says a lot about a person, I guess. Some people find the whole concept of fecal transplant via capsules way more disgusting. Yeah, yeah, but either way seems pretty tough. But if I was wasn't well, but how could that even possibly work with a capsule? I mean, because it, it stays protected till it gets, I guess, activated in the intestine. Is that the thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason that we went to the capsules was because there was some really strong work. Again, looking at the C diff infections, and they compared treatment of C diff infections with fecal transplant via colonoscopy versus fecal transplant given via colonoscopy with fecal transplant given by the oral pills or the crapsules, so to speak. And mm. uh, they found <laughs> that the two treatments were equally as effective. And so for C. diff, didn't matter if you got the sort of enema colonoscopy formulation or if you took the oral pills, both worked to treat C. diff. And so, well, what interests me too also is this, because again, from what I've heard, I mean, I guess in the early, early, early days, you know, and you heard these stories and some of it obviously comes from the veterinary medicine literature, but it's like, you got to find the person with the right kind of feces. <laughs> and now I think they have stool banks, right? Where apparently they're screening them because I think it's potentially, obviously there's probably risks and dangers, you know, and people are just getting someone, friends or family, they trust and getting a transplant from them. I mean, it's not like a liver transplant. It's a, it's a different type of situation. We try to kind of tell people to think of it just like you're getting a blood transfusion and kind of would you just go to some random person and get right. take a blood transfusion in a back alley? Of course not. And so this is the same thing. It's biological material. Right. Uh, unfortunately, about two years ago now, there were two deaths in the U.S. from people who received a fecal transplant that the individuals were immunocompromised, the fecal transplant hadn't been properly screened, and two people got infections and died. And as a consequence, mm. both the FDA in the U.S. and then Health Canada, which is our regulatory body in Canada, shut down all of the fecal transplant studies, ours included, until everybody gave them their safety data and said, what, what are you doing? We need to know that this is safe. And, of course, most of the university programs were meeting and exceeding the safety standards. But uh, there's a lot of people who are kind of doing this privately and aren't. Right, right. That's not right. As I said, there's some clinics I know opened up in England. I don't think really in the United States that I'm aware of because people were usually going abroad for or Germany, you know, those kind of places. 
and getting it done. The other really, really tricky thing to me too would be, I can understand, I guess at a certain level, you know, a person has ulcerative colitis or some, again, inflammatory bowel disease, and they get fecal transplant from a quote, healthy donor, somebody who seems to obviously be free of that disease. But to extrapolate, it's like you take a depressed person or someone with bipolar disease and you say, okay, I'm going to give them a fecal transplant from just a healthy person. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, let's say, how does it, you know, their mood and their such a different thing. Absolutely. And it, uh, these are one of the few clinical trials we're finding that kind of the healthy controls is actually harder than actually finding the participants. And so yeah. uh, I would say, you know, I'm pretty fortunate in that I have no allergies. I have no chronic illnesses and I take no medications and I'm not healthy enough to be a donor. And you're not healthy enough to be a donor. Why? They, we screen these people so thoroughly and it's, it's not just that the donors have to be kind of extremely healthy. There cannot be any major mental illness, physical illness, mm. any first degree relatives. And so, oh, wow. Uh, wow. So, you know, these are, these are hard to find people. And so when we, we find them, we try to, uh, we treat them well so that they want to keep donating and being involved. Well, I'm sorry, I'm going to jump into another question because I'm looking at something on my notes here. You know, this has got to be really rough too. Like I know a lot of times in my field, I also work in the field of food allergy. And unfortunately, in studies to really to see the real results of something, it has to be, you know, double blind, placebo controlled. Meaning, you know, unfortunately, sometimes these children are getting placebo and are still being challenged with peanuts that they might be allergic to. It's, it's really a really brutal thing. But does that go on with these kind of research also? Like a person gets a colonoscopy and they don't know, they might not be getting the actual fecal transplant or are these open sort of studies? No, we're trying to do this right. So we actually have their randomized controlled double blind studies. Wow. People show up and they have to bring in their own stool sample. And so they don't know if they're getting sort of the processed intervention stool from the healthy donors or if they're getting their own back. And oh, so that, their, their own stool is, the, is essentially the placebo. That makes sense, right? And so they don't, and the same thing with... And same thing for the clinicians. They don't know which ones that... Not until the... Wow, that's very impressive. Yeah, this is... People don't appreciate how hard sometimes doing research is. It's, uh, that's why, you know, we do... I think also, and that's why I was excited to have you on the program... What I tend to find, you know, and I love reading the newspapers, the New York Times, and they'll sometimes have a science section. And then you see these headlines that come out that seem so promising and sometimes are misleading. You know, they get patients' hopes up. And it takes sort of really a doctor or someone with clinical or research experience to appreciate what a study is saying, how many people are in the study, how rigorous was it. Because anybody in a very small trial, especially if it's open, not blinded, can get the results that hopefully they're, they're looking to get versus what really is. I want to ask you too, there was a study, again, was quoted in that article and discovered that I guess there was a Japanese study that's showing bifidobacter seemed to lift depression. Have you, is that something that you've come across? Absolutely. And so that was a study looking at the probiotic and the, the work on probiotics, unfortunately, is, is interesting, but most of it is not completely well done in that Many of the studies looked at either small sample sizes, followed them for a couple of weeks, or they actually didn't look at sick people. And so they kind of took people there. You know, if you look at the study, it's like healthy athletes volunteered for this study on depression. And after taking the probiotic, they were still healthy, happy athletes. And so this probiotic made them healthy and happy, but they were healthy and happy before. Yeah, it that, that's so, you know, because 
patients all the time come to my office and ask me, what's the best probiotic to take? And my answer to them is, unfortunately, I mean, I think, we, we, again, I think you know, a lot of experts will say, we don't really know, as you're saying, that probiotics is in its infancy, really, as far as our knowledge. And what most of us tend to know that bifidobacter and lactobacillus are supposed to be good for a lot of reasons. And, but you would think because it's much easier, doing, much easier to do than a fecal transplant, there'd be a lot more really rigorous research clinically showing the benefits and for specific conditions. But you're, you're saying what I, I think I already know, that there really isn't very much. No, that Japanese study was probably one of really? the few that actually looked at people with depression, and it was pretty positive. So I think that there's good reason to think that there might be some signal there, but certainly there's not enough to say, you know, stop your, if you need an antidepressant and you feel bad with that one, you can't stop it and replace it with a probiotic. At this time, there's, there's no good evidence to say that it can certainly replace other treatments for people that need it. You know, is it good if you have depression and you're well to help keep you up, perhaps? And if you can afford them, maybe that's not a bad thing to do. I'd say, you know, I'm giving advice around taking a probiotic, just make sure that kind of the probiotics are labeled, that it tells you the genus and the strain, so you know what you're taking, that it should be kind of 10 to the 9 uh, columnly forming units in there. That's what most of the research has been focused on. So there are things to look for to at least make sure you're not going to take something that is unhealthy. And then after that, I'm going to see if it makes you feel better. But that, that do you do you take a probiotic? I, I don't because I I, mm-hmm. I don't uh, either. I eat a lot of uh, I eat a lot of fiber and sort of the fermented foods, the functional foods that we know kind of help make mm-hmm. the bacteria that we already have happy. And so I. Yeah, I think that's an important thing because, again, also they, they were mentioning, like you, you were talking earlier about butyrate, and that seems to be the kind of the good that's produced by the, the bacteria. I can't even pronounce these bacteria, Phacobacterium and Coprocosis, right? They're really, they should change the names. They got to change those names. But to get that, I mean, you see, what I tell my patients a lot too, by the way, because when we're going away, so obviously high fiber plant-based foods are very good. I like a lot of times when patients have like ground flax seeds because I always say it's good carpeting for the gut. The bacteria need those essentially prebiotic foods so the good ones survive. Is that, is that a good way of putting it? That is absolutely the way to look at it, yes. Yeah. So the biggest thing, again, which I didn't appreciate, again, remember, I, I always tell my patients this too. I trained in immunology and I... Uh, especially in the AIDS epidemic in the, in the late 1980s. And we were trained that, you know, about your bone marrow produces the B cells, you know, your T cells from the thymus and all that. And that's, that, that's like the super important thing of your immune system. And then the functional medicine movement, holistic movement, I have to give them credit. They kind of brought people back to saying, you know, your gut is important. What you're feeding is really important. And now I, I tell patients, yes, I mean, by having a, a high fiber diet, because the worst symptom I worry about with patients in a lot of these cases is constipation. When they're constipated, I know that they're just building up all these bad bacteria. They're not releasing toxins. And I have to do anything I can. It's one of the few things they rarely taught me in all my medical training, how to deal with constipation. I've gotten really good at it now, but it's something I wouldn't have been aware of. And, you know, and I think a lot of doctors don't appreciate it. They're like, oh, just take some Metamucil or, you know, take a laxative. But that's not really, I think, the answer. Constipation and good sleep, if you can get those two things under control, everybody's going to feel better. Yes, you'll see a big smile on their face. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be like the Amazon smile, you know. <laughs> All right, let's, I have to move on to something else that's a little more serious. 
And uh, again, I don't know if this is in your expertise, but I want to ask you still about it. And it's about autism. And it was interesting because the article right before the one I read on yours was an article, very interesting. I'll mention the, some of the scientists that were involved. It was called Bacteria in the Brain. And the article mainly focused on autism. And I, I just want to give my listeners a, a preview of this too. I, I was at a medical conference. It was the uh, Functional Medicine Conference in New York probably about six, seven years ago. This all seems a lifetime ago now with COVID, but I was at a big meeting and David Perlmutter, who's a pretty famous neurologist, grain brain, and he's taken a lot of criticism, but he's actually a really bright guy and, and I think likes to do serious work. But he had this great presentation. He was just a super present at speaking. But at the end of his talk, this I wasn't expecting, he puts up a video because again, he was dealing about all oh, this whole thing about the microbiome and everything. And he puts up a video of a boy who probably was about 13 years old that was autistic. And you could see he was just not communicating and just, I guess, a lot of the behaviors that are familiar with autism. And then he showed, subsequent to that, a few months later, another video. The boy was like, I would say 70, 80% interacting with his family. It was just a different kid. And again, as I said, I take Dr. Perlman as a serious doctor. And he said, what was the difference in this case? He says, you know, again, this is anecdotal. He goes, this, this young man had had a fecal transplant. And in this article in Discover on bacteria in the brain, and, you know, there's a researcher, Sarkis Mesmanian, you may be familiar with. But they, they had a boy named Ethan Woods, who, again, it was just a case study, but he was seven years old. And he has autism. But again, also what I think a lot of people don't appreciate, I'm not sure even psychiatrists, that a lot of these kids with, I think like 70% of the kids with autism have GI symptoms like bloating, diarrhea, and cramping. And again, in this case, he had a fecal transplant and it made a world of difference. So with autism being such a severe condition, I mean, one in every 59 children in the U.S. are being diagnosed with it. What's your thoughts about fecal transplants for these kind of patients? Does this deserve a lot more attention and and focus? Well, I mean, I think clearly it's worth investigating. And I think there was a lot of excitement. Uh, there was one study looking at fecal transplant in individuals with autism. And to your point, you know, the primary indication was for the GI symptoms, because that is a significant part of the presentation for a lot of people. But they also looked at a measure of kind of how their autism symptoms were doing. And they followed them out. Last time I saw it was up to two years out and the difference in the symptoms of autism, social interaction, other things was profound. And this study got a lot of attention, but the problem was, you know, as we discussed earlier, A was open label and B only looked at 11 kids. And right. so I know that there's enough. Why do you think they're having trouble enrolling more children into this? Is it funding? Or is it, cause you know, it's not, it's not from a drug company, obviously at this point. Part of its funding, I think it was, you know, and they said it's clearly, we didn't know this was going to work so much. And so you don't want to do a lot mm. of kids until you figure it out. So right. I know that that group is doing a larger study. There's a couple of other studies underway right now to, to look at it. The other part is, however, and this is the piece where we have to regulate. Here in Canada, there was about a year ago now, an alternative health practitioner, I believe it was a chiropractor, but I may be wrong, got into a lot of trouble. He was charging families who had kids who had autism, he was charging them to take the kids down to Tijuana to get a fecal transplant. There's about eight different things wrong with that. Right, right. He was lost his license, was shut down. So we also have to be very careful about 
you know, lots right. of risks of infections, and we don't know exactly what's going on. And so I do absolutely think that we need to investigate this further. We need to do more trials and better trials. And we're hoping to actually partner with some groups perhaps in 2021 and have a look at uh, this ourselves. And so is there a reason to get excited? Absolutely. Is this going to be the cure-all for autism? I'm sure not. Can it help some people? I hope so. Are there any centers in the United States that you know of that are really, that you would recommend if I had any of our listeners, you know, had, had a child that were, would, would seriously consider this? I can Google for you. I don't know the centers that are looking at. So, so it's not like some you know, people here doing multi-center studies with or anything like that? They're still pretty small. I would say only work with an academic center because you need to know yeah. that the safety things have been taken into consideration that the stool has been cleaned and screened and you're not going to make right. worse instead of better. So make sure that you're working with a place that is following FDA regulations. And you know there are pop-up places. And just think of it as a blood transfusion. When you go to a, a mall and get a blood transfusion from some little hole in the wall place, no. So you probably don't want to get a fecal transplant from there. And, and the other two is also, I have to ask you, you know, again, like I had a patient who went, as I said, to England for a while because he had very bad overgrowth of candida and issues. One of my toughest cases who were, were just barely trying to help to make it through every day. But like he went to England also and he got like 10 transplants. So it's like, I mean, like you were just making the example of like with transfusions. So they need that many transplants. I mean, why would you have to have consecutive days in a row versus you just get it up there and let it see what it does? I mean, that, does that make sense? I mean, you know, it makes sense in that we don't really know. So with our kind of colonoscopy, fecal transplant, it's kind of a one-stop shop. People get one treatment. They have to do oral right. prep beforehand, cleans them out. They get one treatment, and then we're seeing what happens. Is that going to be enough to keep somebody illness-free forever? I would highly doubt it. But you would you expect within one or two treatments just to get a response? It's not like you need 10 treatments to see if you're going to get a response. Or- no, certainly not from a colonoscopy perspective. And there's also lots of risks of 10 colonoscopies. Yes, right, right. Part of the reason, you know, that people are looking more into the oral preparations. A, it's safer. There's not as much right. risk with, as with a colonoscopy. And you can give doses over weeks and months. And so that's actually with, with ours, that's what happens. People get kind of a few days of a number of capsules. And then every week they have to take a few more. So it kind of keeps them going over a course of 12 weeks. And so it's a slow, steady change and you know that's also part of the research is if we find out that this works and then it's dose bonding yeah you mentioned earlier about the 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 dramatic cases with antibiotics that opened your eyes to this do you have any like sort of dramatic cases or anything that sticks out in your mind from doing the transplants or the probiotics with a patient that really just like unforgettable you'll have to invite me back next year because the studies are still blinded okay oh so you don't know okay no, I, I will invite you back because I think this is so important and I think people need hope more than ever. I think that they, you know, as you titled in one of your editorials, which I'm looking right at now, the microbiome and mental health, hope or hype. Of course, we want to hope, hope. It's hope, not hype, because we just don't want to disappoint so many. I want to get back to one of the things, too, which I find fascinating. Again, in my background in immunology and allergy, that affecting the microbiome in pregnancy has to be such a dramatic thing. You know, I see patients with severe food allergies, children and adults. And sometimes one of the most striking things I've seen in multiple cases now is that the mother would typically tell me that she's got two other children that are healthy, no food allergies, 
But with the child that had the food allergy, she had gotten an illness like, you know, a urinary tract infection, or she was not even sure at the delivery, they gave her antibiotics. And that's in, in several of these cases, that to me was the clear cut because the child had food allergies very quickly. And I think by obviously dramatically changing the microbiome, I think for sure you obviously change the immune system. And I think that's why I've had other people on the podcast about this. I think that's why we're seeing this epidemic of food allergies like we've never seen before, because I think antibiotics were just, you know, really used quite extensively for quite a long time and, and probably even in our food supply. So I guess I don't really think it's a stretch to think that this alteration of the microbiome from antibiotics or anything else in our environment can be playing a role in mental health. But well, we know that uh, you know, after a course of antibiotics, your microbiome is takes about three, four months at least to kind of reset itself and to go back to what it was before the antibiotics started. And for our healthy donors that we have in our studies, that one of the criteria is that they cannot have used antibiotics in that minimum. Interesting. Wow. See, that's really powerful. I think people have to hear that. When I know that a patient has to go on antibiotics for some reason, whether it's in my own practice or if they call me because they saw another doctor who said, look, you have a dental infection, you have a urinary infection. I tell them typically also to go on a probiotic. And also I put them on, on a very mild antifungal like Nystatin. From what I understand, they used to do many, many years ago. It kind of fell by the wayside because, you, again, just trying to sort of keep that balance of the microbiome you know, during a period when you do need intervention. Yeah, and I mean, and there's clearly, there's obviously a balance, you know, part of our work is trying to figure out what that balance exactly is. And for the autism studies where they're trying to get the healthy donors to come from kids because they want them to be age matched as close as they can, they want children who have never taken antibiotics. And so, Wow, how are you going to find that? That's very, very hard. <laughs> Far out in the rural areas of Saskatchewan or someplace, you found there's no... Kids are physicians because, you know, we're very loath to start an antibiotic unless clearly it's necessary. You know, my poor children have to be bleeding out of their eyes before I take them seriously. You know, no, no, that's, that's okay. You're going to be okay. Because we, we understand that you have to be judicious in the use of some of these things. Okay, so as we come to sort of a conclusion of this terrific, interesting podcast, from my perspective, is there anything else you'd like the listeners to know? Things, something that they should be thinking about, be aware of that comes to mind? You know what, the reason that I'm doing this research is I would love it if, you know, this really makes a difference in terms of moving things forward for mental health treatment. But I think it's also equally as important if we don't find anything, because I think then what we'll do is you know, tell people to kind of stop focusing on this area. Tell scientists, look, doesn't seem like this right. translates. And let's go look elsewhere. And I think both things are equally important. And this may not be the magic bullet. I'm sure it's probably not going to be the only magic bullet. And so be skeptical and, you know, don't get taken advantage of. Don't stop things that you're, you're already make you feel good because you think that, you know, this is healthier. But Fingers crossed, and when somebody asks you to volunteer for a research study, if you can, do that. Yeah. Those are good answers. The one thing I would add, though, because I like your thinking. I mean, that's one of the things I always like to bring out to my patients, too. I'm a conventional doctor, but I also do holistic. I try to be open-minded, but you don't ignore practical things. But I also don't want to bet against Hippocrates. If he said almost all illnesses come from the gut, you know, some of those early doctors, physicians, healers, whatever, they had some probably, you know, mystical insight into uh, the body because they didn't have all our 
CAT scans, MRIs, and everything else we have today to, uh, to assess patients. But anyway, Dr. Valerie Taylor, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your expertise. I will invite you back. Please let me know when some of the other research comes out because, again, this is such an important topic. Thank you. It's been really fun to talk about this. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.